Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of Star, Cells, and God. This is the show where we discuss new discoveries taking place at the frontiers of science and discuss how these discoveries provide evidence for God's existence, his character, and the reliability of Scripture. My name is Fuzz Rana. I'm a biochemist and a Christian apologist, and I am joined in studio by Dr. Hugh Ross, who is also a Christian apologist and an astronomer, and we both work for an organization called Reasons to Believe, www.reasons.org. Go to our website, check us out if you want to know more about RTB. Also, follow us on social media, RTB underscore official. And then last but not least, please go to our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe, and subscribe to uh, our channel. There you'll get all kinds of great content that uh, gives you information about the science-faith dialogue. Also, make sure you hit the reminder button, the notification button, so that you will be alerted the next time an episode of Star, Cells, and God drops, which is every Thursday. Uh, Hugh, uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, alien spacecraft mm -hmm. and synthetic embryos. So, Fantastic. All yeah, right. So, uh, Hugh, why don't you go ahead and, and get us started? Well, uh, this is an unusual kind of discovery, and it's a lot of people in our constituents have been saying, please do a star cells in God on this. And uh, the so-called discovery is the fact that uh, different governments are saying, and particularly the U.S. government, that we have physical evidence of alien spacecraft that have visited here uh, on planet or from other planetary systems. Now, this is not new. These claims have been going on for a long time about what's in the, on the internet is all these articles basically saying that the U.S. government is now actually admitting they got real physical evidence. And so because we made the claim in this book, Lights in the Sky and Little Green Men, that this physical evidence is non-existent and not credible, uh, we've been asked to respond. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to give three reasons why uh, this is not uh, credible. And uh, the first reason is that there overestimating the capacity of our U.S. government or any government in the world, for example, of being capable of covering up that kind of physical evidence for several decades. Because the claims are such as, you know, in Roswell, there's a special government hangar uh, where they got under wraps, uh, a big alien spacecraft there that they're hiding from the public. Uh, other stories is something's going on in Area 51, uh, or something in China Lake, or some other government base uh, where this is covered up. And people are now claiming that it's not just one uh, spacecraft, uh, but several. So physical artifacts of several uh, spacecraft. And so I brought one of these with me today. Do you remember what these are, Fuzz? Are I you? do. I oh, sure yeah. do. <laughs> so uh, you're old enough to remember uh, uh, these uh, little cassette tapes. And uh, the ministry started uh, Reasons to Believe, where we were distributing uh, these little cassette tapes of messages that we're giving to different university and church audiences. Well, the reason I brought this cassette tape with me is that uh, back in the Nixon era, uh, President Nixon tried to hide uh, just one of these audio cassette tapes from the public. Now, he had all the power of the executive branch behind him. You know, had his whole team people saying, we got to keep this from going public. You know how long he was able to cover up a single audio cassette tape? Just 11 days. 
11 days, he could no longer uh, keep this secret away from the public. So the idea that uh, there's like a 50-foot or 100-foot diameter physical spacecraft in some secret hangar that's been covered up from the public for 50 years and not a single piece of physical evidence has come out, it's not credible. I mean, one of the co-authors we had for Licensed Sky and Little Green Men was Dr. Mark Clark. Uh, he wrote two chapters in the book. And the reason why Ken Samples and I recruited him is that he's one of the foremost national security experts in the country. Uh, he's a professor at Cal State, uh, you know, California and uh, San Bernardino, and actually heads up an eight university coalition where they're basically doing research on uh, government and military intelligence and security. And so he basically said, uh, I know from personal experience, the U.S. government does not have a security system adequate to cover up physical evidence of alien spacecraft uh, for more than a year, for more than a week for that matter, let alone a year or decades. I mean, you would think that somebody, if they saw a craft like that, you know, in, in government control, given the magnitude of what that means, <laughs> would probably leak that. It's, I, it's hard to imagine nobody leaking that information. Right. As Dr. Mark Clark was pointing out, I mean, even if this was Soviet military security, which is considered to be in the Cold War, I mean, the ultimate uh, government security, says even they would not be able to cover up something of that nature. Somebody would leak it out, an artifact would come out, you know, something that you could put in your hand, uh, something. Now, there are fuzzy photographs, but fuzzy photographs are not you know, scientists don't look at that as physical evidence. They can easily be concocted. There's lots of fuzzy photographs. People even produce fuzzy photographs of bodies of UFO beings, uh, but there's no physical evidence of either a UFO being mm -hmm. uh, or their spacecraft. And uh, this slide that I got next year basically shows a lunar rock. And, uh, you know, I've actually been to different museums where I've seen these rocks. I've been in different research labs where scientists actually had a rock. Mm -hmm. Of course, I wasn't allowed to touch it because you don't want to contaminate it. Right. Uh, but uh, these rocks, are the, and they appear in the scientific literature. People have analyzed them. Notice there's not a single research paper in the scientific literature that gives any credence to a physical artifact from an alien craft. So there's nothing in the scientific literature, nothing in a museum, uh, nothing that any scientists or public figures come forward and said, hey, this is a piece of something from an alien spacecraft. You know, forget about producing something 50 or 100 feet in diameter. Just show me something that's a centimeter across. Nothing like that has ever been produced. I mean, not that we want to get sidetracked with this controversy, but, you know, when people claim that we never went to the moon, the fact that we actually have lunar rocks that were retrieved on the moon and brought back to Earth and are available for the scientific community at large to study and are on display is physical evidence that indeed we went to the moon. It is. And notice there's been research papers published on lunar rocks uh, for the past 50 years. It's not just a brief episode. I mean, even recently I wrote an article for... Uh, uh, our blog, The Reasons to Believe, uh, blogs that we produce uh, about the latest research on lunar rocks. So even though they were recovered mm -hmm. uh, in the 69, 70, 71, they're still doing research on it. Nothing like that 
uh, for the alien spacecraft uh, whatsoever. Now, the third reason, and I think this is the most compelling reason of all, is it simply would be a violation of the laws of physics for a physical spacecraft to go from one planetary system to another planetary system. And this has actually caught the attention of astronomers who would like to study what's going on mm -hmm. on the nearest planet outside of our solar system. It's a planet that's orbiting the nearest star, uh, you know, Alpha, or it's uh, Proxima Centauri. Uh, one of the stars is orbiting the Alpha Centauri system. And uh, so it's only four and a quarter light years away, which means it's close enough. It's actually realistic. Mm -hmm. We could send a spacecraft there. But they recognize, you know, with four and a quarter light years, uh, we're going to have to go reasonably fast to get there and anything that, right. I mean, you want to get there within the lifetime of an astrophysicist, right? Yeah. And so the plan is, well, let's send that spacecraft at 10% of velocity of light, maybe 20% of velocity of light. But the recognition is you've got the problem that B equals MC squared. And I throw that equation out because I notice every person in the world virtually knows that equation. They don't know any other physics equations, but they know that one. It <laughs> <laughs> basically is saying that the energy that uh, you get from uh, matter goes up with the square of the velocity. C squared is the velocity of light. So it means the faster you travel to interstellar space, the more damage you'll do to your spacecraft. In fact, even the protons you encounter, the neutrons you encounter, uh, will do significant damage to your spacecraft. Even the electrons will. Dust particles would be far more damaging. And so the recognition we can't go very fast. Uh, astronomers are saying, let's keep it at 10% of the velocity of light. That means it's going to take 42 years to make a one-way trip. But hey, some astronomers uh, are able to do research for more than four decades. Uh, so uh, they said, fine, we'll take 42 years to get there. And then if you're able to communicate information back, that's still another four and a half years. So we're actually looking at 84 years to get any meaningful information back yeah. from the spacecraft, which is why some astronomers are saying, I think we need to go 20% of velocity of light. Right. So if you go that fast, uh, then you cut the time down by a factor of two. Mm -hmm. So, however, there's a recognition, maybe we can't go 20%, because at 20%, you get four times the damage to your spacecraft that you get at 10%. Well, the recognition is even at 10%, we're not able to send a spacecraft bigger than 10 centimeters across. Because mm -hmm. again, the bigger the spaceship, the greater the cross-section. The greater the cross-section, the more impacts you're going to get. And so to minimize the damage of the spacecraft, they're making the spacecraft small. And the calculations show that you don't want to go beyond 10 centimeters. And at 10 centimeters, you're going to need to send a 1,000 spaceships uh, to the nearest planet because at least half of them will be destroyed before they get there. The remainder will be partly destroyed, but they'll be partly destroyed in different ways. And so the hope is uh, maybe they, can, out of the 1,000, they give 400 that are able to function to some degree, and they get some meaningful information uh, back about that planet. So this is a serious proposal mm -hmm. by the astronomical community. And hey, we're talking spacecraft that tiny. They're going to be relatively cheap. Uh, so making a 1,000 of them is not out of the question. Let's go to that planet. But it's basically making the point. For you and I to travel to that planet is out of the question. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, because now we're going to need a spaceship big enough uh, to keep us alive uh, for 40 years. And it's got to be a lot bigger than 50 feet because somehow you got to protect us from the radiation. And so it's basically making the point no large physical spacecraft can make the journey uh, from even the nearest planet. And we already know that nearest planet is not habitable. So if you're talking a habitable planet, we're looking at least hundreds of light years away. And now you're looking at a travel time from that planetary system to our system that's calculated to be greater than the maximum time mm -hmm. a civilization can maintain technology at the level we're enjoying here on planet Earth today. And so, and that's something we've talked about in this book, Lights and Sky and Little Green Men, is that uh, if we're talking physical beings traveling to us in physical craft, the laws of physics rule that out. Uh, now, we're talking about beings like angels mm -hmm. that are not subject to the laws of physics or these problems that we're encountering. Uh, that's a different issue. But if we're talking uh, any life form or any spacecraft uh, that is limited by the dimensions and laws of physics, it simply can't make here. So I, I would consider that to be the most compelling reason why these dozens of stories on the Internet that have popped up in the last couple of months simply are incredible. They can't produce any evidence. The government security is inadequate to the task, and the laws of physics violate, uh, make it impossible uh, for any physical craft of that nature to travel that distance. Yeah, and, and this may or may not be a fair question, uh, but you know I've been reading a lot about the work of uh, A.V. Loeb, an uh, astronomer at Harvard University, oh, maybe yes. chairman of the department. So he's definitely someone who's extremely credible yes. and is of the opinion that uh, this really unusual asteroid that went through our system, yeah, Oumuamua or something. Yeah, it's got a complicated name. Yeah, uh, w was perhaps an, an alien, you know, an alien spacecraft. And he makes an argument for why he thinks that's the case. And I know it's highly controversial, but even he who's suggesting that there might be an area of astrobiology called astroarchaeology where we look for maybe artifacts that alien civilizations might have sent our way as a as a way to you know probe for the possibility of advanced civilization so he's arguing well this might be comparable to the uh, the probe that just left um, our solar system the uh, voyager 1 the voyager right yeah voyager 1 voyager 2 i think both have left our our solar system now so he's our, so so I guess my point is that it's important for people not to take his credibility and what he's claiming with his work and conflate that as evidence that there are these extraterrestrials that have actually visited Earth, because he's arguing something very different than that. He is, and I've read his papers uh, in the peer-reviewed literature, and he's basically referring to this uh, asteroid that we have seen uh, come into the solar system. And he says its shape is unusual. It's almost pencil-shaped. Right. And he's basically saying that's highly unusual shape for an asteroid or a comet to take, right. particularly a comet, which is basically frozen volatiles. You'd never expect it to take that kind of a shape, which is why he's saying I think it's an asteroid. And asteroids are uh, reasonably rare uh, in the outer part of the solar system, you know, ones that are made out of mm -hmm. solid, rocky material. So he's arguing based on the shape. Uh, but he does say in his paper, uh, I'm not claiming that this is impossible from a naturalistic perspective. Right. 
And there's been over a dozen articles in the peer-reviewed literature, basically, and all of them are refuting his claim. Right. But he never made, he says, this is a possible. Right. He says, we need to consider the possibility. And also, he was making the claim, I'm not suggesting that this has life forms on it. Right. That it was a probe sent out. Again, kind of like Voyager. Voyager has left the solar system now. Who knows where it's going to go? And yes, somebody might encounter it. uh, But... It was never our intent uh, to send a life form uh, to right. a planetary system. Right. So it's in a different category. Right. And uh, and people have also been claiming that uh, Tabby star is evidence of an alien civilization. And this is a star where we've seen significant uh, light variations in the star, literally dimming by as much as 20%. Mm-hmm. And so people have been speculating, maybe there's a Dyson sphere around that star. A Dyson sphere is where a very advanced, intelligent civilization uh, basically puts a metal sphere uh, or a silicon-type sphere around a star and basically uses it to draw energy from that star. I mean, you can imagine Mm -hmm. uh, we could build some spherical or partly spherical uh, thing uh, around our uh, star of the sun and to make it all solar panels. And so the solar panels will be drawing energy from the sun, converting that in electricity, sending it down to Earth, and we'd have huge amounts of uh, you know, electrical, electrical energy. And so Freeman Dyson speculated uh, decades ago that a really advanced civilization could do that. Well, uh, you know, this uh, team uh, held it up by this astronomer uh, with the name of Tabitha. She was basically saying, well, maybe that explains these observations. Mm. And hey, there's an article at reasons.org uh, that I've written that basically says uh, that another astronomer made the point, if you've got a planet-moon system like ours, a rocky planet with a big moon orbiting it, it says, number one, it'd be rare uh, because it can only happen mm. if two rocky planets collide. That's how our moon form. But he says, unlike our moon, uh, the mathematics shows us that it's very likely that that moon will collide with the planet. It either spirals away and becomes dissociated from the planet, which case it shares the same orbit around the star as the planet and is inevitable it's going to collide. Uh, or it begins to spiral away and it comes back and hits the planet. When it hits the planet, you get this huge dust cloud. That dust cloud is not going to be evenly distributed in the planetary system. Mm-hmm. And that easily explains Mm -hmm. uh, the dimming effects that you see. Uh, And other astronomers have said, well, there's other ways, too, where you can get big, thick dust clouds in a planetary system that would explain it. And so, again, when you see a claim like this in the scientific literature, uh, let alone on the web, read what everybody else says about it. So you got this single paper saying, hey, maybe a Dyson sphere. And you got a dozen papers saying, no way, this can be naturally explained. But I think the key point, though, is even when people are making these kinds of claims, they are presenting an argument that's going into the peer-reviewed literature that then is put in harm's way. Right. It's evaluated, and the evidence is openly presented, you know. uh, And, you know, people like uh, A.B. Loeb and others, they're basically challenging the astronomers. Hey, it would be valuable if you could prove that this is wrong. And so a no answer is considered to be just as valuable as a right. yes answer. And it's like, hey, you know, 
let's, let's, it'd be interesting if we can actually prove this is incorrect. And so when astronomers put something out like, they're actually inviting critique. Right. You know, let's look at this and see if this is any credibility. Yeah. Okay. Hey, what do you got on? Well, this I'm going to, yeah. Biochemistry, I mean. Yeah, I'm going to talk about uh, synthetic embryos. Uh, but to kind of set the stage, I was going to tell a little bit of a quick story. You know, I, I learned to drive when I was in high school, like many people. And back in those days, I don't know if this is still the case because of liability issues, but back in those days, you could actually take a driver's ed course at the high school that was part of the high school curriculum. Mm -hmm. And it was a semester course where there was an in-class session and then, you know, a, a practical session where you're out driving a vehicle. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I still carry a lot of lessons <laughs> from that driver's ed class with me today. Some of them are, have to do with driving, but others are actually life lessons. And one of those life lessons uh, that I, I learned is uh, not to overdrive your headlights. Okay. Right. You know that, and I, I think most people are familiar with this this uh, problem. But if you're driving at night and your your the rate of speed is greater than the distance, or the rate of speed is so great that the stopping distance is greater than the distance that the headlights are illuminating, you actually are driving blind. Yeah. Yeah. There's a you know, and that could lead to. A catastrophe. You're, you're, well, I see you've got a, a human being there. Yeah. That's at a risk of you yes. <laughs> doing some significant damage to. <laughs> right. So the, the point is you, you don't want to, you know, overdrive your, your headlights. That's just auto safety. But it actually is a good life lesson as well, that you want to make sure that in life, as much as you can, that you're not going so fast, you know, towards some kind of goal that you don't pause to take an assessment of your circumstances to think through what might be some possible outcomes. How are you going to respond to those different outcomes? Hey, Fuzz, uh, that's an important lesson that I learned when I started climbing mountains. <laughs> you don't want to climb them so fast that you miss the dangers that are in the way. Yeah. Like a, suddenly there's a ravine there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Well, again, it's, it's, a, it's a principle that, right. that's extremely valuable. You know, it doesn't mean that you're never going to be surprised, but it means that you're less likely to be surprised. And if, you, if something, you know, unforeseen happens, you've at least thought through some scenarios. Well, this is also really a lesson that I think um, the scientific and the technology communities could take to heart uh, because we are at a point now where scientific advance is happening exponentially. And it almost feels to me like te the technological advances that are coming from scientific insights are progressing even at a greater exponential rate. I don't have any evidence to prove that's the case, but it just feels that way to the point where we are, you know, uh, developing technologies at such a rate that we don't have time to even reflect upon what the technology is, to understand it, to think through how should we use it or should we even use it. The ethical issues. Right. Yeah. Right. And and other other broader issues beyond ethics, safety and things like Economy. that. Economy. Yeah. So. And, and here's a great um, statement I found from Alan Lightman, who's a physicist and also a, a novelist as well. Yeah, he's a great author. Yeah. So, but he, you know, he uh, 
says this, I have no opposition at all to technology. I think technology is a wonderful thing that has to be used thoughtfully. And we can't just assume that every bit of new technology improves the quality of life. It's really in how the technology is used. What I'm very disturbed about is this trend of everything happening faster and faster and faster, and there being more and more general noise in the world and less and less time for quiet reflection on who we are and where we're going. Wow. Powerful quote uh, that, again, is reminding us, let's not overdrive our, our headlights. Well, I think there's a place where we are, if we've not overdriven our headlights, we're dangerously close to doing that in one area of biotechnology, and this is the creation of synthetic embryos. And this is a headline taken from last summer. And we're not just talking embryos of bacteria or fungi. No, no. These are, these are synthetic mam mammalian embryos. Wow. Uh, this is a headline uh, from last summer. Uh, scientists from uh, University of Cambridge uh, claimed to have developed, and they did actually, not claim, a synthetic mouse embryo with, the, with a, uh, a developing brain and a beating heart grown from stem cells. So this is an embryo not produced through in vitro fertilization from an egg and a sperm. It was produced from a single cell, uh, an embryonic stem cell. We're talking in the lab, yes. not, not inside a, ma a mammal. No, this yeah. is, yeah, this is in a lab setting. Yeah. And then uh, just a, uh, about a month ago, uh, there was uh, an article uh, published, all, well, these articles were published all over the, the internet, uh, where scientists from the Chinese Academy of Science uh, presented evidence that they had made uh, a monkey synthetic embryo. So we're progressing from a mouse to a monkey. And while I was preparing for this recording, okay. uh, just a few days ago, oh my. a team, the same team from the University of Cambridge now claims they made a synthetic human embryo in the lab. Now, this has not been published. This has been presented. This was data that they presented at a scientific meeting, and an article was written about it. So there's nothing that's been peer-reviewed or even a preprint available. But it was presented in front of their peers. And yeah. this is the same team that uh, did the work on the mouse embryo. So I believe this is probably an authentic result. And so... This is a, a place where we are developing biotechnologies at, in this particular case, the creation of synthetic embryos. This is nine months. This is, you know, in the span of nine months. Uh, and we're not able to spend the time to properly think through even what is this technology and, you know, what are the ethical implications of this technology uh, before the next advance and the next advance and the next advance are happening. I don't know about you, but when I was in high school, we had, were required to read the novel 1984. Yeah. And I remember the uh, literature teacher saying, there's no way this can happen, anything previous to 2084. Uh, well, maybe 2024. I mean, look how close we are to having yeah. Yeah. artificial wombs. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, so this is, you know, again, um, uh, raises a lot of questions. And so one of the things I just want to talk about is really how should we think about this as Christians and how should we engage our culture and, and the scientific and the technological communities, you know, with respect to this kind of work? Okay, one question, Fuzz. How far developed was this human embryo? 
That I don't know the answer to. Okay. Uh, but uh, but we can. What I was going to do is talk a little bit about what a synthetic embryo is. Okay. Because I don't think a lot of people understand what it is precisely, and. Even when you understand what it is, it doesn't necessarily make the ethical deliberation easier. It actually adds to the complexity. And then why would people even want to do this, right? And, and then what should our response be? And a little background would be helpful, I think. Um, this is showing the, the process of very early embryogenesis, where mm -hmm. you have a, a fertilized egg, and that fertilized egg uh, then is actually surrounded by a, a membrane uh, called the, the zona uh, pellucida. Uh, and within, once the fertilization takes place, the egg cell doesn't grow, but it just starts to go undergo what's called cleavage, right. where it goes into a two-cell, four-cell, eight-cell stage. And then eventually you're at the 16, 32-cell stage where it's referred to as a marula, which mm -hmm. is... Um, referring to its blackberry type appearance. That this is when things get interesting because eventually that zona pellucida dissolves away and it's replaced by a single layer of cells that are referred to as the trophoblast. This is going to become the placenta when the embryo mm -hmm. implants um, uh, in the in the uterine wall. And then you have what's called a, a blastula where you have cells that are the, called the inner cell mass that are going to wind up developing into the organism. And again, they're surrounded by the trophoblast. And then you have a, a process that begins called gastrulation, where you now start to get a, uh, an invagination of the blastula and through, that, through the, that process end up creating uh, different cell layers that are going to be faded to develop into that that you know, in, uh, right. into an adult form. This is a, another stage. Well, this is actually showing the, again, the blast, the, uh, the blastula. Yeah. The blastula, uh, where you see the outer cells, that's the trophoblast that's going to become the placenta and then the inner, inner cell mass. And then you have the endometrium, which is the lining of the uterine wall where the the embryo will implant mm -hmm. and, and begin the process of, of, embryonic development uh, in the in the uterus. Here's uh, showing what happens during gastrulation. So again, you have the 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 blastula uh, that and you see that there is a region that undergoes this invagination and that creates what's called the primitive gut, uh, the uh, archenteron, and then that eventually is going to become called the blastopore, which uh, uh, is the opening into this primitive gut, which mm -hmm. is called the blastocele. And you can see now that there are two layers. This is uh, two layers independent of the trophoblast, an ectoderm and an endoderm. And then later, parts of the endoderm develop into an, a layer called a mesoderm. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that cells that are in the ectoderm are going to wind up developing into the nervous system and into the epidermis. Cells that are in the mesoderm will develop into muscles, into the skeletal system, uh, blood, blood vessels, um, and then the epidermis, of, not the epidermis, but the dermis of the skin. And then the uh, endoderm are cells that will end up developing into the digestive system, the respiratory system, and then other organs like the liver, 
pancreas, things like that. Uh, so, and then the, the next stage in development, which I'm not showing here, is called organogenesis, where now those cell layers start to develop into those organ systems. And that's the process of organogenesis or organogenesis. Um, this is a, another slide, again, as part of background information to show what an embryonic stem cell is. Uh, these are cells that are isolated from uh, embryos that are produced uh, through in vitro fertilization, where you'll get the development to essentially the, the, the blastula stage, and then you break apart the embryo and you isolate the inner cell mass, you discard the trophoblast. And the idea here with respect to doing this is that these um, the cells that are part of the inner cell mass, they're called blastomeres or embryonic stem cells, have the developmental potential to transform into any of the 210 cell types in the human body. So people are exploring ways in the lab that they can culture those cells to get them to develop into progenitor cells uh, or into you know, cells, uh, cardiac cells, nerve cells, things like that. People are even looking at creating organoids you know, where you create three-dimensional cell cultures. So th this is, again, background information. So what these scientists are doing when they're creating a synthetic embryo is they are foregoing the, the, the fertilization process. They're starting with embryonic stem cells. This is a, a diagram showing what the scientists did from uh, University of Cambridge with regard to the mouse synthetic mm -hmm. embryo. In this case, they actually took cells from the trophoblast as well as um, uh, the stem cells. And then there was another cell type that they used as well. And they, they isolated them, they cultured them separately, and then they intermingled them into this aggregation uh, stage. And then they put them into these very complex bioreactors that allowed them to develop in, into these three-dimensional cell cultures that essentially were synthetic embryos. So that instead of starting with an egg cell and a sperm cell, they started with an embryonic stem cell and to get it to develop into these embryos. This is a single stem cell, not a multiplicity? Yeah. So they get it really early then? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, I mean, the success rate for this isn't the greatest, right? It's, it's a, a pretty low success rate, but they're able to do it. Uh, and in fact, and by low, we're talking less than one percent. Yeah, thereabouts. Yeah, okay. But the fact that they're even able to do that consistently mm -hmm. is remarkable. And now, you know, and what they were able to do in mice, the gestation period of mice is twenty-two days. They were able to get the embryos to survive for eight days. Mm -hmm. That's where you saw less than one percent success is going to eight the eight-day stage. Mm -hmm. There's greater success, you know, uh, for the earlier processes of development. Right. But in a mouse at the eight-day stage, you start seeing a primitive brain, you start seeing other primitive organ systems. And so this is remarkable that this is all done in vitro, right, that they, they're able to, to accomplish this thing. And so the, the question then is, you know, why, why are people interested in doing this? And, you know, one of the reasons is just basic science, right? We don't really know much about the, pro the early stages of embryonic development, mm -hmm. uh, particularly in humans, you know, because, you know, through in vitro fertilization, you can create human embryos, but they have to be destroyed 
at the 10-day st stage, maybe the 14-day stage. We don't really have the technology to keep them these embryos alive much beyond three weeks. So there's really very little that we can learn, you know, from human embryos, not to mention the ethical concerns, ethical, right, right. With, with those kinds of experiments. So the idea is that, hey, could we do something like this in mice that might provide us with an understanding? These are highly controlled systems, right? Um, but the ultimate objective would be to be able to do this in humans, mm -hmm. right? And, and the idea is that, well, if we're creating synthetic embryos, they're not technically embryos, and therefore they don't have the same ethical or moral... Same status as being human. Yes. So... That's kind of the argument that's used, and we can kind of dis dissect... That's, that's debatable, right. <laughs> right. We can... Well, I mean, it's I mean, this is where the ethical complexities right. come into play. Uh, you know, uh, so, you know, that's... But part of the thinking is that if you can then create human embryos, not only can we understand, you know, again, the early stages of, of human embryonic development, which may translate into understanding of why people are infertile, what causes spontaneous abortions. These are, this is important insight to have medically, though the pathway to get that is, again, fraught with all kinds of ethical problems. Uh, but then on top of that, people are thinking, you know, we would love to be able to one day grow organs, you know, from stem cells. And going the organoid route is very complicated. Whereas if you could develop the organs through this through these synthetic embryos, you could have a source of organs for. Well, organ for example, there's papers that have been published saying that uh, hey, you can harvest stem cells at the time that a baby is born, and store them and wait for the technology uh, where those stem cells could be used right. to produce a kidney, right. uh, where there'd be no problem if your kidney malfunction, you get one of your own kidneys. You don't need a donor. You get right. your own kidney, and you wouldn't have to take special drugs. But what you're suggesting is. Maybe a better way would be to harvest the stem cells at the fetal time of development in a way that doesn't harm the fetus. Right. But now you've got stem cells that might be more useful. Right. Well, the, the part of the problem here is I, I've not seen anybody use adult stem cells or any other source of stem cells in, in these experiments. Uh, I've not seen anybody do use what are called induced pluripotent stem cells, which are stem cell-like cells. They've been focusing on embryonic stem cells, and there very well may be reasons that I'm not aware of that for, for that work. And this, or, or maybe later stages of the project will right. look for less ethically problematic cells. But either way, you're creating a synthetic embryo, right? And, um, and, and so there's a lot of, there are reasons from a basic science standpoint, understanding drug interactions with the early embryo which is very important when you're administering drugs during pregnancy. So there's legitimate reasons why people are trying to do this, um, but it's fraught with ethical issues. Now, the, the embryos at this point that have been developed are sometimes called blastoids, where, to distinguish them from blastulas, right? With the idea that they are not really the same quality as synthetic embryos, but People are going to try to get them closer and closer and closer in quality to human embryos or mouse embryos or monkey embryos, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, because that's when they're going to become more valuable when you study them. If you're studying a crude facsimile of an embryo, 
what you learn there is is, is questionable, mm-hmm. right? And so once you start getting closer and closer to something that is a very close facsimile to an actual embryo, that becomes a problem. And and this is this next stu- this is the study that I wanted to talk about. This was again published just about a month ago uh, from the Chinese uh, Academy of Science, and they uh, created uh, an embryo, a synthetic embryo from um, a monkey, from a macaque. And the reason they did that is that this is a closer model uh, to a human embryo. Right. So in this, of course, again, as soon as this was published, the announcement came from the University of Cambridge about creating a human embryo. But this is essentially a summary of, of what they did. Uh, and they started again with these embryonic stem cells, and they turned them into these, what they call blastoids, which are synthetic. This is a synthetic blastula. And then they did a series of experiments to show that this is actually a, an embryo-like system. Is One is they re-isolated the cells of the, from the inner cell mass, and they studied them to show that those inner cells from the, or the cells from the inner cell mass were behaving like an embryonic stem cell. Mm-hmm. Then they actually allowed it to undergo development through um, you know, in, vitro, in vitro culturing techniques, and they showed that you get these structures that look like a, uh, a gastrula. And then you can actually look at gene expression patterns, and those gene expression patterns match what a, an, an, a, an actual embryo would look like at those different stages of development. And then last, they actually took this, this, this synthetic embryo and implanted it in a surrogate and yeah, actually showed... That's where my eyes went. They actually put it in a yeah, surrogate Yeah, and so mother. what ended up happening is you a gestational sac formed, and then it ended up disappearing. So, they, so this is, again, reflecting the fact that this is still... A, a crude facsimile of an embryo. But, so it got rejected by the surrogate mother. But it was actually, but the process of pregnancy was initiated and, and progressed to, to some degree. And again, the, the thought is, well, if we work on refining yeah. the culturing techniques, we actually may see a monkey being able to take this to, to, to full term, right? So the point is, is that you're getting closer and closer and closer to you know, something that looks like a, a bona fide embryo. And if we can work it out in monkeys, we're just steps away from applying that same technology to humans, which means there people are going to make the argument that these synthetic embryos are like human embryos, or but they're not exact they're not technically human embryos. And so it's going to allow them to do all kinds of things. But you know, for me, the, the, what is the moral status of these synthetic embryos, right, in humans, right? And, um, you know, the more they become like a human embryo, the less and less clear I am as to what the moral status actually is. So it feels to me like this is a place where we are overdriving our headlights in a, in a really big way. Now, as a Christian, I'm obviously pro-science. I'm a scientist. I'm pro-technology. Generally speaking, I'm a technology optimist. You know, I, I am a little concerned about the rate that technology is developing, but, you know, I, I do believe that there's bright people that are 
studying the, the ethical implications of this technology. I think increasingly scientists are becoming at least aware more and more of the ethical concerns. So I, as a rule of thumb, I'm, I'm optimistic about developing technology and more or less its appropriate use. But this is a place where I start to become, you know, very uncomfortable. Yeah, like, I mean, you know, say you've got a couple and they're infertile and they're wanting a baby. Uh, would they be looking at this as a technique uh, to get a baby? And if that's the case, where do the stem cells come from? Right. Uh, do they come from the father or the mother? Do they come from right. the time when they were embryos or fetuses? Right. I mean, or do they come from some other source that's got nothing to do with them? Right. Yet to me, if you were a couple that was struggling to become pregnant, um, that there are probably better approaches that are much more, you know, robust to, you know... In, Without all these ethical issues. Yeah, yeah. Well, even with in vitro fertilization, it's not free of ethical issues because you are creating human embryos. Right. That, and some of them are not going to be used. So, you know, what, what do you do with them? Right. But I think the motivation for these human synthetic embryos is to be able to experiment with them, to again understand, you know, um, to understand embryonic development. So, are we actually now experimenting on a human embryo, or is this something that is dangerously close to a human embryo, but technically not a human? I don't know honestly how to answer that question. Uh, and if you're now looking at this as a source for organ production or as a source for, you know, a more sophisticated stem cells, one of the arguments I heard is that it's very cumbersome to take stem cells and try to culture them directly in the lab into these different cell types or into organoids for, you know, possibly research purposes or organ transplant. But if you can create synthetic embryos, you know, now the embryo is doing the work and you're much more likely to get higher quality cell types or maybe even to produce organs or at least the beginnings of an, of an organ that you could then harvest. And once you're dealing with stem cells, it's now scalable, right, versus creating embryos through in vitro fertilization. You don't have to worry about donors, uh, egg donors and things like that. So there's very strong motivations, not so much for reproductive purposes, but I think for basic science and then ultimately for organ transplant. Organ transplant. Right. You know, and, and so I'm very uncomfortable with this. You know, when you when we look at scripture as a guide, it's very clear that as humans we've dominion over the the earth. And I think that includes you know, and dominion over life. And I think that includes you know, justification for do, doing work in biotechnology and synthetic biology, provided we're not dealing with human systems. You know, we've not been, been granted dominion over human life, only, uh, uh, but other life on the planet. So I don't have a problem with the work in mice or the work in, in, in monkeys. I don't see that as ethically problematic, other than concerns about animal cruelty, right? That has to be... Well, Fuzz, what about this proposal to, uh, you know, raise uh, pigs so that we can take their hearts and kidneys and livers and transplant them into human beings? Well, I mean, once you get beyond kind of the ick factor, yeah, right, uh, I'm, I, I don't see an ethical problem with that. 
you know, um, there's probably a number of safety concerns. You know, one is, is you know, are we going to introduce porcine virus, retroviruses and things like that into the human gene And will pool? the human body reject the organ? Well, so. it, it will. I, I mean, but there are, are ways you can modify the cell surfaces of the, of the pig cells um, that are part of the organs so that it minimizes hyperacute rejection. So that, that is going to be an issue, but that's where genetic engineering and cloning could really go a long way towards developing Are you suggesting capacity. that that might be a more productive and safer and less ethically problematic route than trying to go uh, with these uh, artificial embryo production? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I definitely do. Okay. I mean, again, it's fraught with some very real technical challenges, mm -hmm. but, you know, th there's a, to me, a big difference between you know, um, you creating a, a, you know, a supply of organs, you know, using an animal model versus, again, using these synthetic human embryos. And I'm guessing, too, that it might be technologically easier to work with pigs and to work with these artificial embryos, or is that not the case? Uh, I don't know the answer to that yeah. one way or the other. Right. You know, um, you know, the like with the mouse embryo, it's easier to work with simply because the gestational period is shorter. Right. Right. And so you, the rate of development is greater, but the complexity of the of the animal that is being generated through that process isn't as great as what you see, let's say, for you know, a, some, monkey. a monkey. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So um, and which has a longer gestational period. So that means that there's a much slower rate of development. Right. Um, I mean, you, you brought up the idea of artificial wombs. I mean, this could also be a technology that could move us closer and closer to having the capacity for human reproduction to be exclusively within uh, in a vitro situation. I mean, there's remarkable work happening on artificial wombs that are designed to incubate. This is all done with animals, but incubate the fetus if it's preterm. Right, so you, you're, there's a significant amount of the fetal development that's taking place in utero before you're in, transferring the, the fetus into an artificial womb. Well, that has interesting medical applications. Like for example, uh, the mother runs into a, a crisis, say at mm -hmm. 20 weeks. Yeah. And normally that baby wouldn't survive if it was taken from the mother. Right. But if there's a sophisticated artificial womb right. that you can take from the mother 20 weeks, put it there, uh, that might, you know, actually push back right. the survival time of fetuses. Well, I'm, I'm very excited about the prospects of artificial womb technology. For as you mentioned, it not only will, you know, extend the time in which a, a, a premature child can survive, but it probably means the outcome, you know, is going to be better because it's a much nat more natural environment than being in an in an incubator. Right. And so it, there's some real positives to to the artificial womb technology. And so not only do you get better outcomes, but you perhaps can extend the the survival time for premature births. You know, much earlier than than 22 weeks or 21 weeks, what, which is what it is now. Right. So I see that as pro-life technology. But the, 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 what's keeping the whole process from being done in vitro is that 
we only know how to really develop human embryos up to about the 14, 21-day stage, and that's where the, the, the process just kind of peters out. Well, now, you know, people are looking at developing these artificial endometriums, you know, uh, that might extend that development further. This technology, by creating these synthetic embryos, means that you can then play around with survivability well beyond that 21-day or 14-day period of time, which means it's more and more likely that we'll have the technology to go from in vitro fertilization to birth, potentially, all done in a clinical setting. Because you've got two technologies. One technology saying, hey, we can help a fetus uh, survive right. at an earlier time than 21 right. or 22 weeks. That technology is going right. to progress towards an early and earlier time of transfer. Right. And you got the other thing saying, hey, we're moving forward beyond 14. What if they converge? Right. If they converge, then you actually have artificial womb technology, right. but that raises all the ethical issues. Right. What happens uh, to a fetus that has no contact with his mother in right. the womb? Yeah. Well, and, and uh, when I wrote the book Humans 2.0, I have a section of the book on artificial right. womb technology. Right. To me, it's a great technology for medical intervention when you have to use it. When you have to use it, when there's a crisis. But it's not, a, it can't supplant what happens in utero. And there's a lot of studies showing that there, that, that interaction between the fetus and the mother uh, has a huge hey, and don't, impact. Don't, don't forget about us fathers. I mean, I was having a relationship with both of our sons yeah. before they came out of the womb. And, you know, there's no really scientific evidence that has a significant effect, but it could. Well, I mean, the, the, the developing fetus is actually interacting with the environment in the womb, right? And there are light, light cues that it's picking up. Uh, there are, you know, sound cues that it's, it's, it's picking up. You know, so it, there is something that is being contributed to the development, you know, from the exterior environment. So it's not just simply the interaction that the, the, the developing fetus has with the, the mother. Right, right. Yeah. So anyway, you know, these are challenging times. And it, I think it's very important for Christians, come to the bottom line here, to really understand the technology uh, to really think through the ethical issues and to be willing to engage, you know, in, in the public debates about, you know, how this technology should be used because people are craving, you know, input, you know, in terms of how do we handle this ethically. And this actually is something that I would even think it, we may want to encourage young people in the church who are interested in biotechnology and biomedicine to consider developing expertise in these areas. Um, it's it's walking, walking a tightrope to be certain, but if there's not Christians who are experts who represent salt and light, uh, then we really are leaving, we're, we're capitulating this very important area of biotechnology to essentially non-Christian influences. And maybe we need to make the novel 1984 required reading again for high school students. Right. In Brave New World and all kinds right. of other <laughs> things. Yeah. So anyway, that's all I, I've got to say. Uh, oh, that's really a good buzz. Yeah. Thank thanks you. you. All right. Well, welcome everybody. Or <laughs> Not welcome, but thank you everybody for joining us today on Star Cells and God. 
we would invite you to uh, put your comments about today's program in the comment section. We want to hear what you have to say about these two topics that we discussed. And then remember, go to our YouTube channel, uh, subscribe. Uh, Reasons to Believe One is the channel. And then also make sure you use the, the notification symbol so that you are alerted when the next episode of Star Cells and God drops, which is every Thursday on our YouTube channel. And you can also uh, get access to Star Cells and God on your favorite podcast app. So until next time, remember that the more we know about science, the more we have reasons to believe.